All right there, everybody. Welcome back to the Art of Hospitality podcast. We are on episode two. The title of this episode is Profitability Per Property. Back with Scott and Adam. How are you gentlemen doing today? Doing great. Good to be back. Yeah, yeah. This is one's exciting. It's time to get to work, right? Yeah, the last episode was a lot of high-fiving and fun stuff. And this one's like, oh God, straight into the numbers, right? Let's see how things actually work. So I think this will be a good one because I, I do think this is a topic that a lot of people don't spend a lot of time focused on or spending much of their thought processes talking about. But you guys have thought a lot about this and you have a lot of different areas of focus or things that we could go over. Maybe bring us to the high level. Maybe Scott, we'll start with you this week. You have this, you talked last week about your operational ability. You talked last week about here's kind of the way that we can get the projects done. Talk a little bit more about the like, mindset that you have, how you approach numbers how you approach finances with regards to this topic of how much money do you actually make per property? Yeah, sounds great. So for us, we didn't look at it this way before. So what we're going to talk about today was new and we learned this or we taught ourselves this day two of COVID shutdown, right? So like everyone, we were tightening down and trying to figure out what does this mean? What's about to happen to us? So we took this idea of we've got to look at the portfolio, who's going to be able to pay their mortgages, right? Just all of the things that we had to think about and say, in our portfolio, what's most valuable to us, right? Building management, all of these things. So we started digging into it and we came up with some pretty shocking results, shocking to us, but also pretty telling. And we're going to get to that and really share that because since we did that day, that's how we look at everything going forward. So our entire portfolio now, top to bottom, we look at P&L per unit. We look at it monthly and I think there's huge value, right? So from my perspective, we talked a little bit about this. I'm turnaround guy, right? So I can fix anything. I can make numbers better. If you point a number out to me and say, this number is off. If I know the mechanics to that number, I can go after that number and I can make it work. One of the things around our office that people love hearing me say is it's just math right? I will constantly say it's just math. We've got an outbound call center out here. And I will tell you, I don't know why, but I will tell you if they make 24,000 calls a month, and Adam has already heard this, he's grinning because he's heard me say this. If they make 24,000 calls a month, they hit goal. If they don't hit goal, I don't know why, but I can tell you it's just math. So with that in mind, I'm a super strong numbers person, but I'm also a realist, right? And I think Adam will bring in a little bit of the realism or the philosophy behind it. So keep in mind, I'm just straight architect. The numbers are the numbers. The math will tell a story. But I also know inside of our business, inside of everybody's business, people are going to look and say, yeah, but you don't understand this or you don't understand that or I've got this carve out. And and. What I will say is I agree and there's a time and a place for that. But the number one thing that I do every month that we do as a team every month is we at least look the numbers in the eye, right? Now, if we have an explanation for those numbers and we want to look past them, that's fine. And that's a business decision. But I think the idea that Adam and I really want to impress today is spend the time, look the numbers in the eye, and then move forward from there, however you see fit. Yeah, because some of these conversations are not fun at all, Adam, to look at something and go, oh, I have this relationship with an owner, or I have this property in my program for five years, and then you have to look at it and go, ah, it's no longer serving me. So you have more of kind of a, I don't want to say human element to it, right? But you have more of a, okay, how did this relationship come to be? How did this come into like our, our business in the first place? How did this unit get into our program? Tell me a little bit about that. What's your philosophy when it comes to looking at these units on a profitability scale? And how do you marry 
keeping the homeowner happy, keeping the guest happy too, who's actually might be experiencing that property and then keeping the business healthy because obviously that's the most important thing. Long. I think this is a great example. On the first episode, Scott and I talked about me as the philosopher, Scott as the architect. And I think this is a good example of how our minds work and how we try to differentiate the roles that we have within the business. And you nailed it, Conrad. I think that there's a human element to this discussion that we've got to consider. I still lean heavily on the hard facts. I still lean heavily in, in Scott's world and think about making some decisions based on those hard numbers. But the final decision, you've got to bring in some of that human element. So I'll touch on a point we made in the first episode. And we talked about blind spots. And this is the example that I gave in that first episode was profitability per unit. I think as an industry, this is a huge blind spot for us. And another touching point from the first episode, we talked about the songs that that related to us. And I mentioned release and I mentioned the, uh, the line that said, ride the wave wherever it takes me. And, and this is another good example of that too. So Scott and I were talking about what we we're going to do this week. We were planning on talking about RevBoost Collective and Travel Advantage Network and what our business model was. And then we started to engage on LinkedIn and we realized that this profitability per property discussion is actually on the top of a lot of people's minds. So there was a lot of engagement on LinkedIn when we started to talk about this. So we made the decision to, to ride the wave where it's taken us. And we moved this one up to the next episode because we really wanted to start to engage the industry around some of these discussions, the hard numbers, but also the philosophical soft part of the decisions where you've got to think about what the business implications are and what the relationships, not only with the homeowners, but with the guests and some of the harder decisions that you've got to make around that. And when we think about that, there's a number of different ways that we can look about at this. So part of it is on the homeowner side, you've got relations, you've got uh, some homeowners that were lost leaders at the beginning that to this point, maybe they're not going to be a good fit for you moving forward. But then on the other side of that, there's the opportunity to improve as a business and start to think about areas that you can look at and start on a high level, start on the macro level and think about your business as a whole. And then you start to get into the particulars. So I think there's a way to look at this in a really easy calculation and say, what are the group of properties that are making my business successful? Sarah Bradford and uh, gosh, why is the name escaping me, Conrad? Who's the other? Tim, Tim Cafferty. Tim Cafferty. Sorry, Tim. Sarah, Sarah Bradford and Tim Cafferty had a good discussion about this a, a number of episodes ago, where they started to talk about finding the 75% of the units or the units that make up 75% of your company revenue. And I think that's a really good macro way to look at this. If you calculate your overall revenue, and then you start to think about individual properties, how many of those individual properties can equate to 75% of your company revenue? you start to recognize that there's a small 25% portion that you need to look at. So that's at a macro level. How do we want to look at our business and figure out what do we want to focus on? Once you find that on the macro level, you've now got to get to the micro level and start looking at each property individually. And that's where Scott's going to go when you start to think about these individual numbers is where is that break even point and what is the percentage that we drop below where these no longer make sense. And I'll, since I talked about Sarah and T, I'll just mention that on that episode, Sarah mentioned that of 150 properties, I think she dropped 20 properties. I forget the calculation that I did, but at the time, I think it was like 13%. Now, Sarah and Tim are well-established managers who have been doing this for countless years. So for them to be exposed to this type of issue within their own portfolio tells you that this is widespread throughout the industry. So I think that this is the same case with every property manager that's out there, that we're ignoring the fact that we are not profitable throughout our entire portfolio. Now, to go back to the question, yes, there are some other goals and considerations that you need to think about once you realize what that small group of homes is that are no longer profitable. 
But you've got to make some very serious questions and decisions about that, especially as we enter a time in the market where things could be slowing and you could get some economic pressure pushed down on. Yeah, we said it a few minutes ago, it's just math, right? But that math can be a little bit hard to do. So break that down for me. How would you look at the size and scope of let's maybe we do a fictional property manager with 50 listings, 50 units under management. Is it easy for that person to get that math in their head, Scott, and understand it? Or is it easy to be fooled or trick themselves and account for things incorrectly? What's the first step that someone would take? So size and scope imperative, right? That That's the key. And Adam and I have talked a lot about this one. And I've been a part of it when we had a VRM, right? The number one thing that VRMs do is when you ask them about their business, they tell you that they're a $10 million business. We, the, the VRM we ran was $10 million. There's a trick to that. That $10 million was gross rental revenue. So if you look at that and just, there's a whole perception, there's a whole that your employees have a perception of $10 million. You build your own perception around $10 million. But the reality is 80% of that money comes in and goes right back out. So size and scope is, it feels great to say you're a $10 million company and you work to make that $10 million, right? You're bringing that $10 million in. There's no doubt about it. And I know there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into that. But if you just turn that on its head and just focus on the fact that you're a $2 million company, I think that alone starts to address some of the issues in the industry, right? As we get into some of the numbers that we uncovered inside of our portfolio, you're going to see huge difference between we're a $10 million company and we're a $2 million company. It's a mindset shift that I think everyone's got to cover just to put themselves in what's the real size and scope of who we are, because then size and scope of issues. And to Adam's point, that revenue and who's contributing that revenue becomes a much, much bigger story and helps to shape things as we move forward. So once you have a better understanding or a better mindset on the size and scope of what the business actually is, maybe that's like gross margin. Maybe it's like a fair way to think about that if we were to put on our MBA hat, right? This is the actual, what we take in to your point, gross booking revenue. Here's what we actually keep. And then from there, here come down all the expenses. So talk about that a little bit. It matters what you keep from that dollar, not necessarily just the fact that a dollar comes in. So give us like an overview of the holistic view, if you will, of like the particulars of that 2 million that you keep on that example. How would you look at breaking those things down? maintenance, marketing, cost. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think I'd lean back on on Scott if you wanted to run through the spreadsheet, Scott. So I'll tee this up and then I think, Scott, you run through the spreadsheet. So for everybody that's listening, what we've done is we've broken down Vantage, which Scott had mentioned was the company that they sold to Vacasa. And as you look back through that, you start to understand some of the particulars about the units and then overall about the portfolio as a whole. And what we did is we tried to simplify that portfolio and simplify this analysis into a profitability per unit in a way that we could then share back with the industry. So again, thinking about what we talked about in the first episode, our goal is to collectively improve, highlight blind spots, offer solutions, help the industry continue to walk down a path of finding solutions and then executing some of those solutions. So this is one of those opportunities we saw, and this is why we bumped it up to episode number two, we wanted to get this out into the industry so that we can start talking about it. Now, we'll talk about at the end where we believe where RevBoost Collective can start to help some of this. But in order to get to that point, we've got to talk about what the issues are and then how you can start to, to see those issues and what those solutions might be. So what we'll do is we're going to offer up a tool. It's an Excel spreadsheet, very easy to use. We'll give some contact information at the end. It'll allow you as the manager to plug in your specific information into a few categories. And as a result of that, 
you're going to come out with an end result that will tell you exactly where your properties sit in a ranking system within your portfolio. We're going to look at a few different variables within that analysis. And another surprising part of this isn't necessarily a blind spot, but I think it's a little bit of a holy grail within this, this industry is the idea of a ranking system within units. So one of the benefits of us going through this analysis and building this tool is we started to rank these units. Now that's an internal ranking because we get to look at this and say, where are we allocating our resources? Do we want to continue managing this property? Do we not? Is this the right fit for our portfolio? But it also can evolve into an external ranking system where we can start to share this with homeowners as well as guests. And we start to help them understand that, look, from a profitability perspective, you fall into this category. And as a result of that, you can have this type of expectations with the relationship that we have, whether that's us managing the property or whether that's a guest staying in our property. And because you fall in this category, this is where your expectations should be. That's a gap that's been in this industry forever. Hotels do a good job with that in their brands. I'm a believer that vacation rentals will solve that in the near future. And Scott and I are going to take this and we're going to use this and some of the efforts that we have. Again, the idea of building in the open if we fall, but we're going to go out into the open. We're going to use this ranking system as well. So that's just a little teaser that will come out of this. But I'll let Scott walk through our profitability per property calculator. Now, I think I might change the name of that to give us a new acronym that we can remember. So Scott and I both recently, by coincidence, ended up with a couple new puppies in our world, a Kavapoo. So if you ever want to see what a teddy bear looks like as a dog, do a quick search for a Kavapoo. It's a mixture of a King Charles Cavalier and a toy poodle. Teeny tiny little teddy bear dogs. Randomly, we both ended up with them. So as a result, I'm going to shift this to per unit profitability. So we have PUP as our acronym. So when we talk about a PUP analysis, That'll bring us back into this unit profitability. So Scott, I'll let you dig into to what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, and I'm just going to leave the Kavapoos alone and we're going to move on. No. So again, it's uh, it's pretty straightforward, right? And again, it's let's let the math be the math. And I'll say it again, put emotions aside, right? As you're building this and we built it in a way where we track it every month. So we look at this every month. And again, if there's issues on here that you know about, you can look them in the eye and move past them, but at least you look at them every month. So super simple spreadsheet. You need the property name, of course, and then you need the gross rental revenue by property, the commission rate, right? What's your commission off that property? Because that's going to be, that's the big number to get you from the math to stop fooling yourself. Forget about gross rental revenue. We're only going to use it once and that's to get to how much are we actually making on it how much we're making, right? That's the commission dollars earned. Now, if you know it, you don't have to do the math, but in our case, it was quick. GR times our commission rate equals our commission dollars earned. And then we added the guest rating. We added the number of guest initiated work orders, right? Two factors of what do the guests think, both in surveys and then also in their work order requests. And then a couple big numbers here at the end, and that's the biggest one being your total overhead. Overhead essentially being any unbilled payroll, rent, and basically all things to keep the doors open and the lights on. What does it cost to run your business that you haven't found a way to bill out either to owners or to guests? And it's key to have that number be as real as possible and be as high as possible because that's what leads you down this path. And then the last thing is determine your cost of work order. 
when we did this for our portfolio it was $35, right? Now, some people are going to say, hey, we bill out all of our work orders. So if you do, it's easy. Just put in zero and make sure, and that math will work itself out. I would just make sure that you're really clear on, are you really billing those things out? Hey, Scott, let me jump in for two quick points. So one, yes, I think that we need to be truthful with ourselves. I think it's a quote from Richard Feynman says that we're the easiest ones to fool. So we need to be careful that we're not fooling ourselves. So even if you tell me that, yes, we bill out for every one of these work orders, I can guarantee you that you are rolling trucks at times where you are not getting paid for that. Whether you're comping the vendor, or you're comping the guest, or you're comping the homeowner, it happens all the time. So as you go through these analysis, it is really important for us to be truthful with ourselves and make sure that even if we say that we're doing this at zero cost or even making some money off it, bring that back a little bit and make sure that you're factoring in some of those times where you're rolling these trucks where you're not actually getting paid for it. Now, the other thing I'll mention, and I'm curious on your thoughts on this, Scott, is fees. The other side of this discussion that we didn't factor in this analysis, and I'm sure we're going to hear about it from the industry, is that we're not factoring in fees. And everybody's got this laundry list of fees that they're starting to add. They've been adding for years. This is another interesting one, came up on LinkedIn this week, and there was a lot of interest and a lot of discussion around this. Now, my perspective is that we are seeing a bit of an evolution around fees. Now, this is a little bit of a sidebar and perhaps a SEP discussion in an episode in the future. But I think fees are changing. I think the fees that we got away with as an industry for probably the last 10 or 15 years, but definitely for the last two years during the COVID boom, those are not going to last going forward. I think homeowners are getting more savvy. Guests are getting more savvy. We're seeing this with Airbnb, which is testing the idea of getting rid of cleaning fees as a whole. Now, that would be an amazing shift in the industry. And I don't know if that would be a good or a bad shift, but for a listing site to come out and change a standard that's been in place for the entirety of this industry to say we're no longer charging cleaning fees would be a huge shift. And I don't know where that impact will be or if it's a sticking point, but the point is that people are focusing on fees and they're starting to recognize that all of the fees that we have built in or that we're surprising people with at the end, they're probably not going to last. Now, what I would say is that we want to focus on our expertise. We are property managers, not fee managers. You want to make sure that you are making your properties as profitable as you possibly can. At the end of the day, if you can add some fees and, and they're reasonable fees and they make sense, pet fee, cleaning fee, whatever it might be, and they make sense, great. You have to add them in because you have to make sure that you can make payroll and everything has to be profitable at the end of the day. But I would not build my business around the idea that I need to keep layering in fees in order to be successful at this. If you have an issue where you are falling short as a property manager on a revenue side, then maybe it's a discussion with the homeowner and maybe it's trying to figure out what the commission rate should be because you deserve to get paid for your work, but it shouldn't be by surprising people with fees. We didn't add fees into this. We recognize that fees are part of this business, but we should not be basing all of our decisions on profitability at a unit level based on those fees. Yeah, I agree. And I think the other hook in this, Adam, and you and I talked a lot about this is how do you allocate the overhead? Right. And there's a lot of different methods for it. And I go back to what Adam just said. You're in property management. Right. So it shouldn't matter if it's your best house, your best property, and it brings in eight times the revenue of the lowest property. The reality is it's a property that you manage. So what I strongly encourage and that we certainly do it is don't fool yourself and allocate by revenue, putting more of the cost on the top revenue and trickling it down. Do it simple. What's my total overhead divided by the total number of units I manage? Let that speak for itself. Because again, that'll hide stuff. Don't hide it and let it just sit in your face. So we did this, right? So two days into COVID, we do this. 
Now, we don't have the world's largest portfolio, right? It's a little bit over 400 units. Conrad, we found out that 75 of our units were actually costing us to manage. 70, our oh. bottom 75 units were costing us $90,000 a year to manage. So quick math, that's 19% of your inventory that was costing you money to manage. Yeah, so it's incredible, but I also don't think it's out of the norm. I think that's pretty standard in this industry. I think there's a strong segment at the bottom of the portfolio that is losing money for every manager out there. Yeah. So I'll, I'll cover one more thing, Conrad. So the hook, remember where we started, right? In scope and size is now take that $90,000, right? And say, okay, hey, we have a $10 million portfolio. We're losing $90,000. Listen, $90,000 is $90,000. That doesn't sound too like terrible against 10 million. Until you say we have a $2 million portfolio and we have $90,000 flowing out the back, that's a difference, right? That is a material number. That's a real number. So for us inside of those units, Conrad, it was, we rank them because remember, we added number of work orders and we added guest score and you already know the outcome, right? If you flip this upside down and you say, where are the units that I'm losing money on and you sort them from worst all the way down to the ones all the way at the bottom that are making you money. Your guest scores are terrible. And that's where your maintenance guys are spending all of their time, right? All of your maintenance resources are going to those units and not by a little margin, right? They are constantly at these units. So even if you look and just say, okay, yep, the cost is off. It's costing me money. Underneath of that is, well, the, well, those units are literally costing you money. They're also distracting you from your best units because your maintenance resources are so busy handling those units that the dents and the dings are starting to impact the bigger and the higher end units every stay and maintenance isn't getting to them because they're busy. They're tied up on the smaller units, the ones that are costing you money. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine too, on the review side, like from my marketing point of view, my marketing background always leads me to believe that reviews are judged across the entire portfolio. So if you're having review issues across 75 properties, but you have 125 properties that are incredibly high rated, it doesn't matter. People look at the weighted average and they see a bunch of negative reviews and they assume, oh, these guys don't offer the best types of properties that I could stay in. So it's a downward spiral in that respect. So what was the decision after that? So you found the 75, was it 75 phone calls and thank you for your relationship and see you later? How do you, <laughs> break it up's hard to do, man. Like, how do you do that? Yeah, so I'll start some of it, right? And then Adam can layer in because for us, and this is part of why we're here, right? For us, it was, we actually called those owners to say, we called it the retail program. We looked at TAN as the wholesale program. So we basically looked and said, this arrangement isn't working, right? For whatever it is. And Conrad, some of them, the owners were taking too many weeks or they, the units just weren't the quality they needed to be. So whatever their issue, we would talk to them, but we pivoted them all and said, we do have something available to you and it's RevBoost Collective. We want to offer you into the TAN program because what TAN was able to do is come in in most cases, pay those owners more money than what they were making in the retail market. And then it addressed it on the wholesale or the retail side, the Vantage side, because now they didn't have to worry about those properties. They weren't managing those properties. They weren't putting the resources into those properties. So that was, we had our solution right at our fingertips and, and it works very effectively into where Adam wants to go. And that's to dig into then there's, a, there's some other philosophy, right? Because there are human reasons that Scott doesn't always think about just when I'm looking at the numbers. But there's other reasons to say, hey, Adam's been a great owner. Adam 
has been with me since day one. But again, I think back to one of our earlier points, you have to look it in the eye on a monthly basis and just go into this knowing where you are. Yeah. And I'd add a couple of things around that human element. I think that it's one thing to look at these hard numbers and think about it like an architect and reach some conclusions. But as we talked about at the beginning, you've got to bring that human element back into it and think about it holistically as a business. Now, what I will say, and I'll, I'll take this in a couple of different directions. So the first one is, and I think we as entrepreneurs need to take control of the things that are in front of us. One of my favorite topics when I'm hiring somebody is to think about locus of control, whether you've got an internal locus of control or an external locus of control. So meaning that, do you feel like the outcomes are in your control or do you feel like there's external forces that are creating some of the outcomes or leading you down the path? If you feel like you've got control, you're gonna take action and you're gonna start making decisions in that way. So I think that having this internal locus of control is very important for us as entrepreneurs. Now, the analysis that Scott just walked through, this PUP analysis, profitability or per unit profitability, I think is an important one because it gives us as property managers that locus of control. It gives you a simple tool that you can input this information and then see what that list is. Now that you've got that list, you've got to make some decisions. So I think the PUP analysis, if you think about maybe the 80-20 rule as the framework for this discussion, the PUP analysis gets you 80% to that decision. You've got that top 20% that you've got to think about in order to make that final call. Is this the right fit is it, or is it not the right fit for me? Now I'll break that down into a couple of different categories. So you've got different types of homeowners for one thing. You've got good homeowners. Those are the people that your staff loves to work with. They're always pleasant to talk to. They are easy to understand the guest needs. They're willing to do work. They give you as the property manager the ability to make decisions. They trust you as the expert. They understand where the relationship is and what those expectations are. Those are the owners that you want. Now, once I understand that category, hey, these are good owners, I still am gonna loop back to Scott's architecture analysis and think about those numbers because I can't just hold people in my inventory indefinitely if I'm not making money off them. Now, there, there could be a time and a place where it does make sense. I've got a really good relationship, long lasting, they've got other homes, whatever it might be. Maybe they were here from the beginning when I was trying to grow and I wanna pay it back to them. There's some valid reasons to maybe keep some of them, but for the most part, if you're losing money, you're losing money, even if you're a great homeowner. The next ones are just bad homeowners. And I don't care how much revenue you produce from a bad homeowner, they are not worth having in your portfolio. If they're treating you poorly, they're treating your staff poorly, they're treating your guests poorly, they don't see you as the expert and give you that ability to manage as the expert, I don't think you want them in your portfolio. Now, most of the times, that has to do with expectations set in the beginning. So I think as property managers, when we develop these relationships with homeowners, we really need to set the expectations and where the boundaries are within those relationships. Sometimes it makes sense, even with the most profitable properties, to just cut people loose because they're stealing your resources, maybe not from a revenue perspective, but from other ways, time, resources, those type of things. And then you've got these high performers, which is a mix of both, right? You've got really great properties and you've got good homeowners. That's the unicorn in this industry. And you need to hold on to those as long as you possibly can and do everything that you possibly can, which in the end circles us back to resource allocation. We all have a finite amount of time in our days. We've got big ideas, we've got dreams, but we've all got 24 hours in our day that we need to execute on those dreams. So prioritizing is really just uh, managing the resources, the scarce resources that we have within those 24 hours. So you don't have time to put even if it's a good homeowner, you don't have time to put much resources into units that are not profitable because as Scott was alluding to, you're stealing from the properties, those unicorns that are really profitable. If I roll a truck out to fix this hot tub again, because the guest called and said it's not working, 
well, that truck can't go to that really great unit to deliver those extra towels for the great guests that are willing to pay extra money for the great customer service. I'm reallocating those resources in the wrong place. So I think we've got to look at all of these individually and think about the homeowners, think about the homes, think about the returning guests. In the end of the day, I do think that we lean back into that 80% and say, is this profitable or is it not? If it's not profitable, we've got to get those into a category where we're then going into each unit level and looking at them and saying, what am I going to do with this next? Now, this leads us into Scott's point around RevBoost. In the past, if I was asked, what do you do with these homes? And you asked this question, Connor, what do you do with these 75 homes that are not profitable? You know, for the past 30 years, I'd probably say, cut them loose. You don't need to spend your time on those people. You're a property manager. You don't have time to put your efforts into a property that is not going to make you money. I think in today's evolving age, I'd switch that a little bit. So first of all, I'll give a quick nod to Venturi, and they do a fantastic job of helping this industry understand the value of each one of those units. Each one of those units has value for you on the overall company. It's adding value to your company. So if you were to exit or sell, each one of those units has a specific value within your inventory that adds value to your company as a whole. So I do think there's value in holding on to units. With that said, you've got to get down to that micro level and look at the unit level to see what performance is like. And then to add to that, this is where RevBoost comes in. Even if I'm holding that property because I think it's adding value to my overall company, I'm probably not going to hold it for too many years if it's sucking revenue out of the bottom of my company. So this is where, again, as the industry evolves, I think RevBoost Collective really offers a great opportunity, especially as the economy starts to push down and starts pushing down on Knight's Booked as well as ADRs. This is where we can step in and we can turn a non-profitable unit into profitable overnight. We guarantee rent, we'll pay you up front, we'll give net rent to the homeowners, we'll give a 10% commission to the property managers. The property managers can continue to manage that unit so they maintain the relationships with the homeowners. They maintain the operational control if they want it. We could take it over if they don't. If they do want to maintain that operational control, cleans, inspections, maintenance, then we'll pay them for their operational cost as well as a margin on top of that. So this unit that you've been struggling with for years that is not making you any money is actually taking money from your bottom line. We can turn around, make it profitable overnight, make sure that homeowner is seeing that profitability and give you the ability to turn a profit on the operational side, which is a huge switch. When you look at that 75 units that was losing money advantage, if there's an opportunity, and this is where Scott was going with that retail versus rev boost, if there's an opportunity to flip them out of retail where they're losing money and get them that guaranteed rent, that's a, a very quick win for everybody involved. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way that doesn't end up being a net positive because one you mentioned Tori there for a second, one thing he's talked to me about a lot and he's hammered in my head is the value at exit too. So if you keep those contracts active and then there is an exit down the road and you don't have to just jettison them completely, there's a huge value there, like a, literally tens of thousands of dollars per unit that you're able to keep into your program. So I would imagine in the scenario that you're describing, that's also a valuable consideration. If you keep them active, you have a lot more control of what you know maybe an acquirer might want down the road from that business versus just, again, completely getting rid of them is probably not the ideal financial situation in an exit scenario. I know it's different yeah. from an operational perspective. Yeah. yeah. No, 100%. And I think that those are the things you want to think about. So the exit scenario, there's definitely value there. If you can turn a profit and RevBoost will help you do that, if you can keep them in your inventory and turn a profit even better, now your the value of your company is better and your mm -hmm. individual P&L for that year looks better. The other part of, of that point there, Conrad, is that you're not giving that unit up to a competitor. That competitor could mm -hmm. just be Airbnb or it could be the guy down the street. 
but you're not giving them the ability to add it to their inventory to make their company more. Because who knows what that homeowner might agree to with a different manager. Maybe your commission was X, but the manager down the road pitched Y or offers different services. There's a lot of virtual property managers out there nowadays that will promise 10% commissions, even though the services they offer are vastly different from a local property manager to an uneducated homeowner. That sounds appealing. Oh, 10%. That's much less than I was paying a local property manager. Surely that's a good deal. And they don't really look at the fine. Yeah, keeping it in the program and educating. And that may be part of it too, right? Just educating the homeowner on what you it is that you do. That also, I think, can be part of the equation to some degree as well. For sure. And that's actually a lot of what we're doing right now is education. When we talk about RevBoost and uh, trying to help the industry understand it, it to your point, it, it extrapolates all the way down to that homeowner level. So not only are we educating the property managers about what we can do and the value that we can add, but it's also got to get down to that homeowner level so that they understand what value we can add. But part of that, I think, goes back to the point I made about expectations. I don't think these homeowners recognize that their units are costing these managers to run. I don't think any homeowner expects to put their property into a management program and have that manager lose money. There's That doesn't make business sense. And homeowners intuitively would recognize that. So I think there does need to be some more transparent discussions about what's happening and why it's happening. And that's across the industry, but it also stretches down into that homeowner discussion as well. Right on. So the primary thing that I think would get people from listening to this topic to taking that next step would be that spreadsheet through the listeners, how they would get that spreadsheet. Would they just have to email, reach out to you guys, and we can get that spreadsheet over to them? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we moved pretty quickly with this episode. We saw there was a need. We saw that there was a topic of discussion that people were interested in. So we moved relatively quickly to talk about this and to put this spreadsheet together. As this moves forward and as we refine this process, I think we'll put it online at some point where we can have a calculator that we can share online with the full industry. We're not quite there yet, but we do have an Excel spreadsheet that we are more than happy to share. I'd be happy to get on a screen share and walk you through it if you want to, but just email me. I think that's probably the best way. A Norco at planwithtan.com. So A N O R K O at planwithtan.com. And I'll be happy to send that spreadsheet to you. Phenomenal. Anything else, Scott, that you want to add in as some extra layers on top of this from an operational perspective? Or do you think we did a pretty good job of summarizing this topic? No, I think we're there. And again, I agree with everything Adam said, right? There are two sides of this. But I think the only thing that I'll impress again, you you can make a business decision and you can know that you're losing money in some areas and you're doing it for a reason. The only thing that I would impress that I do, even on my side, is I at least look at it once a month. And again, maybe it changes, right? And again, for us, it was COVID, right? But maybe things start to slow down, booking pace slows down, at least have it ready and at least have that health check. So, you know, if and when you need to make a move, you at least know where it is. Yeah, I think that's a good, I think that's a good way to put a bow on it, which is that you don't know what you don't know. So if you go through the process of figuring out what, you know, the gaps or the, put the uh, sneak behind the curtain a little bit, turn the flashlight on and see in the corner and see what's actually there. You can at least understand what you're actually committed to and what your, the mechanics of your business actually are. You can make better decisions, even if you don't change anything immediately. And now of course you have options with Red Boost and things like that. All right, gentlemen, if you don't want to add anything else, we can put a bow on this week. As always, we would love some reviews. Obviously the feed is still pretty new, so I don't think we've generated any reviews yet, but I've seen we've, we've got some new subscribers trickling in. So we appreciate those. If you could leave us a review, that would be fantastic. If you do, definitely email Adam and maybe he could, I don't know, could he sing a song or something and as a thank you? Could he buy you lunch or buy you a drink sometime at VRMA? I don't know. I'm going to commit to things for him. He didn't ask me to do any of those things, but we need reviews. And <laughs> if I well, make him dance to make it happen, I'm willing to do it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, put uh, put Kavapu in the subject line when you're asking for the report and I'll make sure that Scott sends you a picture of his dog. 
<laughs> All right, Cavapoos. I'm Googling that right now. It's much more beautiful and cute than I imagined. So I'm happy. I'm happy that turned out in a good way. All right, phenomenal. Well, thank you, gentlemen. We will talk next week on, we'll dive a little bit deeper, I think, next week into Travel Advantage Network, into Red Boost Collective. There was a sampling of it this week. We have a lot more to share coming forward in the coming episodes. So definitely do subscribe, leave a review. We appreciate it. Send us Cavapoo emails and we will catch everybody on the next episode.